This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs on Friday, the 16th of February. And my guest this week, Professor Carl Kitchen of Birmingham University. And we are going to try to get to the heart of education, what schools are really for, as we look at immigration, culture and religion. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. And once again, good morning. This is Teachers Talk Radio and I'm John Gibbs. And those of you who have followed this podcast or listened live in the past will know that after many years of teaching, I taught, goodness me, for some 40 odd years and uh, have now retired. I actually chose to retire just as the schools were closing down before before the pandemic. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do in my retirement was well, there were many things, actually. I'm glad to say anyone thinking of re- thinking of retiring or looking into the future and wondering what you do when you're retired. The answer is lots of stuff, lots and lots of things. And so I've been uh, busy doing all the things I wanted to do while I was teaching and didn't have the time because I was too busy teaching. And one of the things I wanted to do and Teachers Talk Radio gave me the opportunity was to explore what schools were for. This would seem a rather lofty enterprise, uh, and uh, I think it was partly because I felt the busyness of education and working, well, almost constantly every weekend filled with things and half terms filled with other things. I didn't have a chance to look at the woods through the trees. I was too busy in the middle of it all. And I don't know how you feel about teaching, but for me, being in the middle of it all is not a bad way of describing the average teaching term or half term for that matter. Well, I wanted to explore what schools were for, and I've done this through using the credibility of Teachers Talk Radio to contact guests, many of them academics and experts or teachers or experienced teachers or retired teachers who can shed some light on aspects of teaching. The world of academic research is continually exploring many questions of this kind and some of them, some books, some writers, some research, some articles are really trying to get to the heart of education, which I've, while I've called this episode, the heart of education. If I may use a metaphor that I just thought of a moment ago, uh, education is a bit like an onion and the more you peel it back, you have to get towards the middle of what we're all about. And what we seem to be about is something more than simply delivering good results and GCSEs and A-levels and reading scores and measurable outcomes that can be observed later by an Ofsted inspector or other forms of surveillance in our schools. Instead, I think we're at something very profound. It's, a, in a sense, the making of human beings. 
Another useful metaphor besides an onion, I think, is the iceberg, and we are the tip of something much, much larger. And we're exploring this week the way in which schools not only reflect the society that they operate in at the particular time, but they also sit at some kind of crossroads between a number of conflicting forces. Desires to train, desire to improve, desire to prepare people for the economy, to allow students to rebel, to allow students to explore, but also to teach them how to conform. All of these things create a terrific tension within the heart of most schools and the lives of teachers, which is why, in a sense, we find ourselves rather shoehorning students into the system without always necessarily exploring exactly what it is we're trying to do. I think we know what we're trying to do. We hope we do. Something rather noble, something rather rather old and ancient to help people become the people they should be able to become. That's why I think many of my guests, drawn from the world of academia or with broad experience in schools, have been able to shed some kind of light on what it is schools do. Therefore, I was delighted to find this week my guest, Professor Carl Kitchen, whose background is rather unique. And I think it gave him the opportunity to explore some of these bigger themes and to see what education might really be from a a very interesting perspective. Carl started as a primary school teacher in Ireland and then moved through research and writing into academic work and eventually became the Professor of Education at Birmingham University. So it was in the context of Ireland and in that particular context that his interest in education and what exactly was going on in schools became developed. The context or the Irish context, therefore, when you listen to our our discussion in a few minutes, you'll hear that the Irish context is particularly important. Here's a country that is changing rapidly, of course, like most countries in the world, I suppose, and is in that change, a number of features coalesce to expose what goes on in schools. And the most interesting thing I think about Carl's work in his books and in his articles and in his research is that he attempts to find out what is going in schools by conducting the kind of sociological research where you explore from the point of view of the participants, i.e. the students. He tries to get into schools and see what they are experiencing. He's looking at the great themes that are some of the themes that are affecting us, the themes of immigration into Ireland, the themes of changing culture, the way young people experience religion and the young people develop an idea of themselves. We together today in our discussion, we explore his ideas of slow learning, of the recovery of play, of the recovery of joy in learning. And that if we don't provide students with the opportunity to explore and to play and to rebel and to subvert, they will find those things themselves. And I think that's the most important takeaway from today's discussion, as you will find, as I explore with my guest, Car Kitchen, slow learning, growing sideways, and try to get to the heart of education. I think you'll enjoy our discussion. 
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more. And we're back with my guest, Professor Carl Kitchen, Professor of Education at Birmingham University. Carl's written many books on education, particularly exploring all sorts of very interesting areas that I've explored in this book to do with the, the sort of contested areas of schools. Before we talk about some of your ideas and work, Carl, you were a primary school teacher at, at, the, at some point in your career, and yet you're now Professor of Education at Birmingham University in the Education Department. Can you just explore that route from, for the benefit of the teacher listeners out there this morning? Sure. Thanks very much, John, for having me. I started as a primary school teacher in West Dublin in Ireland. Uh, I worked there for a number of years. This was in the early 2000s, the context where there was a lot of new immigration to Ireland at the time. It was the Celtic Tiger era where there was an economic boom. So there's a lot of population growth in a particular area. I was very interested in supporting children that were from migrant backgrounds and were um, either new to the country or their parents were new to the country. Early on, I got interested in doing a master's to research and understand what was going on for those children in terms of literacy. But I realized there was lots of issues around racism happening. And basically, to cut a long story short, I did a PhD looking at issues of racism in education in that context. And that led on to me doing what is unfortunately quite a rare thing now which is to get a secondment from my teaching job into being a researcher uh, for other projects so there's a mix of luck privilege and hard work um, to get into academia and that led me on to getting a lecturing job in university college cork in 2008 so i spent about four years as a primary school teacher and probably a lot of people might at that point but i worked in teacher education then in cork for about 12 years through that time developed further research wrote a couple of books several research articles, etc., on various issues to do with inequalities. And ultimately, I did my PhD with the Institute of Education in London. And people that I worked with, including Deborah Udell, had moved here to Birmingham. So when a job came up in Birmingham, I thought, well, that's a great opportunity to work with people that I've always wanted to work with more closely. And uh, yeah, I got the job and uh, got promoted to professorship here. That's the story. Would it be fair to say that Ireland, historically, has always been an exporter of people? And yet during yeah. during the period of the, of the sort of Celtic Tiger, the fastest growing economy, it becomes yeah. an importer of people. And that's Is that a particular challenge for Ireland? Well, it's an, it's an interesting question now, even more so than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, because now you've got the rise of 
people actively protesting against immigration, whipped up by far right and by certain politicians, um, that uh, the country isn't big enough or that there aren't enough services, etc. So, yeah, Ireland is known in modern times as a country of emigration, people leaving in their droves, often connected to particular periods of poverty and economic decline. So from the mid-90s onwards, Ireland had its first net immigration for the first time as an independent state in its roughly 100 years of existence. But if you think about it, Irish history and identity is actually constituted through waves of immigration as well, because the Celts, the Vikings, the Normans, and that, that's an interesting thing about how we've constructed Irish identity in modern times, is that we've defined it by the Celts and the Vikings, maybe not the Normans, because they're connected to the English and, and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. So it's a complex thing. But yes, in modern times, we've been known as a country of emigration. Now, as a wealthy country, immigration feature of modern Irish society and with all of the complexities that brings because in the Irish context, we don't have a history of directly colonizing other countries involved in, in British imperialism. It's quite a unique set of circumstances for Ireland to negotiate the politics of immigration now because people see themselves as quite innocent in that respect, but there's a lot more deeper complexities to it than that. That's a good place to think about where we make the jump from that to schools, because mm. schools and education are more contested, more complex places than, mm. than we think about them initially. There's all sorts of ideas of the, of the of schools being all young, but your school days being the happiest of your life and so on, and an idealised view of childhood mm. and, what, and what schools should be, and, and a sense in which people seem to think that people could be a teacher. You know, Schools must be fine. It's a transfer of knowledge. Mm. And there's so much more than that. And they, in fact, they seem to reflect all of the, difficulties in society. When a society is coming to terms with change like the ones you've just described, schools are at the forefront of that. You're going to see that reflected in schools. Is that what drew you into looking at how that integration might, might manifest itself within schools? Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes people describe schools as the front line of of integration. Um, but if you think about it, really earlier settings are the front line of integration. Um, often earlier is crushes, nurseries, preschools. So if you want to bundle them into that whole school category, certainly schools are more or less at the front line of, of integration. People who are different to them. That partly depends on the type of neighborhood you, you've grown up in. Obviously, if you live in a multicultural neighborhood, that's not the case. And it also assumes that you've got a fairly well integrated society where schools are not segregated. So in theory, if, if things aren't too segregated in society and schools aren't too segregated, schools are at the front line of integration from that point of view. Unfortunately, though, when children encounter difference for the first time in a school setting, they're also likely to encounter racism and either experience racism or be involved in perpetrating it. So I come from the point of view of not idealizing any social setting, whether it's schools, universities, whatever, just understanding power relationships. They're not idealizing children as outside of social norms and outside of what they hear and and what they're part of. I always quote research, children in Northern Ireland are able to identify sectarian symbols at the age of three. So it's important that we recognize the complexities that are there, that schools are complex places and children are part of that social complexity. It's so easy to impose on schools an idea of what you would like your school to be. So it's either, yeah. your, it's either your own childhood, schools should be like the way they were when I was young, yeah. or schools should solve the problems that I see on the streets and in the world around me. So Absolutely. That, or, that, or those problems. Uh, on the one hand, ideal ideal places of innocence. On the other hand, mm. in, in engines of change. We must, yeah. we must fix the world. 
And and one thing I would say, it's often very hard for teachers to hear that because their their job is hard enough. I'm a critical academic who critiques the kinds of problems that can arise through schools and can be reproduced through schools. But I'm also someone who supports public education. I'm a professor of public education and I support public sector workers. So anything that I say that's critical of, of what goes on in schools, it's not to talk down teachers at all. In fact, I think we need to lift up teachers as much as possible, especially in this country. And yeah, so I just want to kind of make that point early on because it can feel sometimes that people who work in social justice are somehow teacher bashing, and that's the exact opposite of what we want to do, is to lift up teachers and support them. That message will be received very well by teachers, because we can't teach in schools without seeing their faults. And it's not just the faults in this particular school, but education itself is so riven with tensions, and the teacher's role is so ambiguous in a way. You're helping students to explore the world in an idealised way, and you're also sorting them out into those who can and those who can't. Yeah, uh, yeah, and in that sense... Yeah. It's quite a brutal sort of place. I think that very few teachers are unaware of what they do, good and bad. One of the themes in some of your writing has been this: the idea that you, schools impose certain values. Since from the Irish experience and the colonial experience, the British mm. have tried to use education to sort of colonise yeah. by imposing Britishness, whether it be through sport or through values. Of, but aren't schools always doing that? An unwritten value, an unwritten purpose of schools is to colonise the working classes with middle-class values. Right. So you go into school in the morning, have you seen the big poster we put up on the wall that says, read lots of books, particularly yeah. particularly these ones. These ones, yeah, yeah. The value of book reading and these particular books and the, the canon of English literature. Yeah. Essentially, we're civilising the working classes. We don't like want to say that. We don't want to think that's what we're doing. Yeah. But essentially, it's a class colonialism. Schools construct and impose a certain worldview. And my colleague, Michael Hand, the philosopher, he's written a really interesting book called The Theory of Moral Education, where he goes through what's a moral, you know, what's a just and what's a not just way of doing that. Because to enable people to be free thinkers and free citizens, you have to present them with something for them to engage. He's, he's written some really interesting stuff on that. But the term colonialism has particular connotations. So to use the word colonize, in the Irish context, I'm thinking about the specific ways in which settler populations, there's a distinction, I suppose, to say schools colonize working class through middle class values. In a broad sense of colonization, that's true. In the work I'm doing in Ireland, I'm talking about specific forms of settler colonialism. And given the kinds of things that are going on in the world today, it's important to be to be careful about how we use the word colonizer. I agree with you. I'm careful about how I use the term middle class values and working class values because I think I, I prefer to talk about resources and, and getting by. People sometimes say, well, these middle class people have these values and they're for education, etc. Working class people do too. It's just that often they have other necessities in terms of getting by. The media in particular likes to represent lower income and working class families as not having education values when they do. Um, but in terms of the, how schools do in terms of civilizing the, wor uh, the working class, absolutely. If you look at one of the arguments I make in an earlier book called The Politics of Compulsive Education is related to a history of Irish education literature. It talks about how the development of an Irish education system was a British colonial experiment that was exported around the British Empire. It was set up as a national school system before the English school system was. In many ways, the British government learned about disciplining the working classes who are moving industrializing centers in England and, and wider parts of the UK to discipline them and because greater enfranchisement to working classes, people now able to vote. So disciplining them to make sure that they vote in the right way, 
uh, to be part of a respectable society. And so absolutely, schools serve that function. Um, and in, in contemporary times, discourses of aspiration, for example, you know, do and kind of presenting um, aspiration as something that either you do or you don't do, not related to the resources that and the necessities we deal with. Absolutely, education policy more than schools themselves is fundamentally about this process of trying civilizing populations that it thinks are at risk. A good example of how colonialism and capitalism or neoliberalism connect together is the discourse of British values itself. Yes. And the idea, the idea, the so-called cricket test. If you think, take the actual what's in the policy around British values, which is our values of democracy, rule of law, individual liberty. A lot of people in Britain would say they're not fundamentally British. They're a staple of liberal democracies around the world. It's just the, the nationalism that goes with them and yes. how that translates then into practice. British values is a murky area. In some yeah. ways, it's over-exaggerated as, uh, in terms of its importance. But on the other hand, then it's linked into problematic policies around prevent and which stigmatize certain populations, particularly Muslims. So, so there is a kind of an interesting internal form of colonization that goes on in the British education system, which is both racialized and class. If the British try to appropriate British values as something uniquely theirs, yeah. the British narrative of civilizing the world and so on. Yeah. And in the same way as the middle classes, the moment, we were talking a moment ago, the middle classes might appropriate education as being theirs and not, and not something. But there are absolutely um, parallels between the two. Uh, and they do cross over, especially people from minority ethnic backgrounds who are kind of framed as being potentially less uh, British or less associated with British values. If you're more respectable, middle-class family, yeah. presenting yourself um, in those ways is both classed and racialized. There are parallels between, between the two. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Carl Kitching of Birmingham University. We are discussing the heart of education, religion and culture. Your use of the term compulsive education, it's a sort of pun on compulsory education. What did you mean by compulsive education? Why did you choose that term? It came from two things. One was, there's a wider literature out there which talks about, Stephen Ball calls the totally pedagogized society, where particularly in middle class homes, the expectation is that every interaction you have with the child has to be educative and it has to be geared towards them advancing somehow. But, and, and you know which itself is back to that class issue of how in more working class and lower income homes people live more on the basis of necessity and day-to-day -day and immediate needs so that kind of luxury of being able to create a project of pedagogizing your child's life is not as available to people it came also from the fact that i was looking at immigration and discourse in ireland in the early 2000s the compulsion to educate all the time as this very middle class thing and, and something that you have to be doing all the time to be a good citizen and a good parent. Huge pressure on, on parents. Everything they buy for the child has to be educated. Um, and, and on the other hand, I was looking at debates in Ireland around immigration in the early 2000s and they were actually very positive. Politicians and teachers were talking in this way that it's great that we have immigration to Ireland because these people were talking about in disadvantaged and working class areas how immigrant students 
were raising the bar for other students. And it was this thing again of the good migrant giving an example of these white Irish working class kids. There's a sort of version of that, isn't there, with the, mid- the deliberate choice of the middle class parent to send their children yeah, to a yeah. difficult school so they can experience those kind of children before they leave that world and go to university, yeah. almost as if and they were going on some sort of uh, experience, you know, like going off to Africa for a year. There's research that shows that middle class families still benefit in that context because they're gaining this culture, other cultural capital. But yeah, I was more looking at how people were self-congratulatory around migration, saying, isn't it great that we have these good immigrants coming to civilize the working classes in Ireland? Because aspirational. My point was, in a country where compulsory education is up to the age of 16, this is a low bar to set around being positive around immigration. You know, and it also is deeply classed. It's other working class communities and finding another way to position them. The problem is when you set up these binaries of good and bad working class and good and bad immigrants, that even when people are talking about the good working class and the good immigrants, that easily flips because it's so simplistic then to the bad working class and the bad immigrants and this right wing populism that you see where one is pitted against the other, the good yes. working class versus the bad immigrants, which is Brexit in a nutshell. Really, So these kind of good, bad categories in public discourse and in policy discourse are really, even when it's in the good times, you need to think ahead and think, well, actually, this is going to turn these kind of simplistic narratives of different groups and populations and uh, what they do in education. I think, yes, I, I like the link there you made with Brexit and the way that was presented as a certain types of working class communities mm-hmm. have had enough yeah. of globalization, of a world they didn't understand, of being imposed upon. So there was a sort of reassertion of that more authentic northern British world. Yeah, absolutely. The assumption that working class people are white was a major part. So there's this kind of thing of you've got immigrants, these people of colour, of immigrant descent, and then you've got these white working class people. Paul Warmington is a, a colleague and is launching a book soon with us actually called Permanent Racism. And it's part of it is about how the Brexit narrative presented working class people in Britain as white. That's one feature of the book, but that's very much true, is that it's romanticized the working class in a certain way. And actually in education, the only two select committee inquiries on an ethnic group in Britain in the last 13, 14 years were on the white working class. You know, so the ways in which the focus has shifted. And the interesting thing is, it's not that there aren't issues for white working class students in schools. Of course there are. They're being used as a wedge to bring up other narratives. If you look at the Conservatives' record on child poverty, for example, it's one of the worst in Europe. Mm -hmm. Child poverty has increased the most in uh, Britain than it has in any other country in Europe uh, since the austerity years. So it's not that the governments are actually that interested in poor white children. They're using them as a political football, in my view. I I absolutely know that from recently talking to other teachers and on Teachers Talk Radio and some of the review programmes we've done, that violence in schools and poverty, not just the food banks, have become mm. a, a kind of shadow social service, is accepted part mm. of our society. Yeah. It's now good to give to the food bank, to volunteer for the food bank, as if that were mm. natural, normal in our society. Uh, and that poverty is reflected in schools with frustration and violence. So schools, for many teachers out there listening, not idealised places of, of uh, happiness for, Absolutely, yeah. for yeah. a significant proportion of students. And actually schools are, are being given all of these different tasks Yes. And it, it's, it's very much true. Youth services, children's centres, all of those things have been cut so much and other kind of multi-agency supports have been cut so much that it's very difficult to be a teacher right now. You're providing multiple different kinds of services when you should be providing one main service. So 
it is curious that the schools we said are, you know, promoting middle class values in working class children. But the first thing to go in terms of austerity and cutbacks are things like music education, uh, yeah. arts education. And, and so you have a real difference between schools in Britain today who are focusing on teaching, reading and writing and arithmetic for these mm. kids. But down the road, the other students are getting visits to the museums and joining the orchestra. So there's a kind of paradox in which you want to say schools are places of for all mm -hmm. values, artistic values, and self-improvement. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, for this group of students, if, as long as you can read and write, you'll be fine yeah. in our yeah. economy. There's a lot of contradictions there. A lot of your work, Carl, has been... Uh, engaged in research that looks at the actual lived experience of students in schools, how they adapt and indeed develop and resist cultural values around them and use those cultural values to their own advantage. How do you conduct that kind of research to actually find out what students are experiencing in school? So about the year 2010, I was very interested in the phenomenon of first communion and, you know, as a Catholic ritual and in the Irish context, because the vast majority of primary schools in Ireland are still run by Catholic patrons. And whether you're Catholic or not, you're kind of sitting there observing this if you're not a Catholic. And, 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 for, and for a non-Catholic, first communion is receiving communion for the first time. <laughs> first communion is a, is a, is a sacrament in the, in Christian yes. churches and in the Catholic church in Ireland, at least, it's typically structured into primary school settings and right. practiced and prepared through Catholic primary schools for seven and eight-year-olds in what we would call second class, which is seven and eight-year-olds. I, I, I always get confused between the Irish and the English grades. But the reason I mention that is because I did a pilot study looking at that phenomenon in one school context. And then I got funded to do research with seven and eight-year-olds in schools around the country, including multi-denominational secular schools called Educate Together Schools, some of which are actually in the UK now, and the patron of what you call the Academy Trust here. To do that research with seven and eight-year-olds because of their age and because of the way to assimilate information and their need for concrete rather than very abstract discussion. So with seven and eight-year-olds, um, the schools were really supportive in allowing me, my colleague Yafa Shanique, um, who worked with me on the project to do different activities with children, for example, to learn about what they thought about the place they lived in and how they constructed it and, you know, whether religious values played a role and how they understood their local community. We would take pictures and bring them in on an iPad and ask them to talk about what they saw. We presented short films and videos to the class and asked them to talk about what they perceived was going on in that context. We created maps, made plasticine worlds, you know, we did all sorts of things to have a concrete discussion about how they understood the world now, how what, how they felt about different issues. Like, did they have a spiritual or, or more worldly understanding of the life, cycle of life? So we would look at a sped up version of a daffodil growing and dying and talk about that in the human context. So we found w ways in to access their understandings mm -hmm. on things in very concrete ways. With adults, we would have used more typical interview formats and focus groups as well that yeah. children molded their view of religion and religious ritual to their own context and, and for their own Absolutely. purposes. They did what everybody does, express the way they understand things through their own context and life experience. The ways in which um, it was clear that if you're talking to a, a diverse urban class group of children of seven and eight-year-olds compared to talking to a group of seven and eight-year-olds in a very rural Catholic 
primary school, they had very different understandings of the world and different understandings of Irishness, for example. So you'd have children who have Nigerian parents who would say, I'm Irish, but I'm not from Ireland. And then you'd have children in a white Irish Catholic setting who have no concept of Irishness being anything other than being born here, being white, being Catholic. So, and then when it comes to religion, similar to what adults would experience, where you've got children who have their view of the world is that, well, if you don't believe in God, then you must believe in the opposite. It's not that they think that other people are Satanists or something. It's just that they don't have a language for something different. So they go immediately to the, what is conceived of the opposite, which is the death. With things like consumerism, one of the things they talk about a lot in the book is how children intermingle, for example, their experience of consumerism and popular culture with how they understand religion and express it. We had one Muslim boy who was talking about a good angel and a bad angel. And I was asking, where did you learn about that? And he said, SpongeBob SquarePants. So, you know, <laughs> so I think there was just lots of nice examples of how children kind of intermingle different ideas. And in adulthood, we think of religion in very purist terms. It's a scripture and a set of beliefs. But actually, all of our faith is expressed through material culture and, and material uh, consumption, whether we do it in a respectable way or with a leopard skin dress, which is what one of the or leopard print rush, I should say, how a young seven-year-old girl gets baptized very close to her communion wearing a leopard print dress and, and how that's seen as not respectable. Um, but actually, she was quite devout. She prayed, she prayed a lot. So I was trying to raise examples of how religion and materialism are linked together to avoid mm. being very judgmental about that. Because there's a phrase in Ireland, actually, <laughs> don't know if this will translate very well in the English context, but there's a phrase called bouncy castle Catholics which is that you've got Catholics who all they do is the baptism, the communion, where you have a bouncy castle because of the right. party. Yeah. And then <laughs> you might do the confirmation and then the wedding maybe. And, you know, it's that hatch match dispatched kind of Catholicism. Uh, yes. Was, yeah. But there's a lot of class connotations in that as well. Working class families don't do it properly and they're only in it for the party and, and all that kind of stuff. So right. actually a lot of the debates around whether we should change the school system in Ireland to be less Catholic and more secular. A lot of punching down of working class and traveler families saying that, you know, they're the problem. Yeah. So how can we create an equal education system? I'm rambling a lot. but Fascinating. I thought of two things while you were yeah. talking that collision between the adult world and the purposes of school. Yeah. Li linear compartmentalizing knowledge, yeah, learning, yeah. processing through knowledge and children who want to play. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was yeah. struck a few years ago when we had serious snow in this country. The schools was, were closed, and I watched a trainee teacher waking up in the morning and hearing the schools are closed with snow is a very <laughs> delightful feeling. Yeah, and uh, not so much for the parents. Not with remote learning, though. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's true. They can pursue you anywhere now. Yeah. So there was a head teacher being interviewed, and he said, "I'm very disappointed that the local authority have closed the schools." And he said this phrase: he said, "I want the students in and learning." I thought, well, you're very adult. Let them be out and playing today, yeah. of, of all days. Building snowmen yeah. and throwing things and doing all yeah. the stupid things they want to do. We don't yeah. allow for childhood and play yeah. as much as we should. I'm, I was in secondary education, but and primary school teachers might be saying, oh, you don't know the half of it, John. Yeah. Playing is a lot of what we do. But I know that increasingly as school progresses, sort of driving out the, the frivolity of childhood and in placing it yeah. with, with learning in the proper way. Absolutely. I think the concept of growing sideways as, as a way of thinking about play and faithfulness, children play with religion in all different parts of the world and, and they encourage us as researchers to do the same. 
that playfulness, you could, the, the more we gear towards compulsive education, we're losing that sense of playfulness for inquiry and for finding out about the world. So in the example of snow, when else are the kids going to get an opportunity to actually feel snow, understand its properties? Like, like it's a scientific thing in a way. It's when you throw a snowball, how effective is it going to be? I don't want to turn everything into a science lesson, but there's that, that <laughs> experiential element of it. Because at the same young people in secondary schools, because if you've got, like you have in most education systems, a very exam-driven system, you can substitute the word play for inquiry and for negotiation of an idea and for project-based learning and for exploration. It's the same thing. And it, unfortunately, very exam-driven systems cut out opportunities for deep inquiry for slow learning and for taking a moment to actually connect um, concepts and to discover things unfortunately you know like certainly that's the case in the english system but it's also the case in the irish system it's interesting actually some of the most innovative policy in the irish system now is in the early years and it's influencing the primary school the new the develop the redevelopment of the primary school curriculum because at least in policy terms is a recognition of how important play and inquiry and discovery is to deep learning and lasting learning. In, in the last 30 years or so, there was a movement away from progressive education, which did mm. emphasize things like play. I, can, mm. I, I came into education when going into role, using drama. Uh, yeah. This is in a secondary school, cutting out your classroom to learn about the Titanic, doing a play on this as a way of exploring history. And that diminished mm. until it was how to learn effective revision points and mnemonics yeah. for the exam. Not just driven by exams, but by a view that there, there should be a disciplinary quality. Absolutely. More yeah. and more and more. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the idea that progressiveness and inquiry and playfulness lacks discipline and lacks yeah. rigor. Yeah. There's a lot of distrust of teachers and children when you impose so much more control I'll, and so on. I'll share, you know. I'll share a small anecdote here. When I was teaching in the 1980s in a school where there was a history lesson run by a very effective drama teacher. He was yeah. doing the Industrial Revolution. All the students wrap up, put tables on top of tables in their class, and they were moving, sliding the tables backwards and forwards. Other students were crawling about underneath, and their teacher is walking around as if he's an overseer shouting at them. And he's trying to get them the idea of the dark satanic mills and the horrors of the Industrial Revolution. The school had invited a television company to film it, and it was presented as inside modern education. This was presented as what's happened in our schools. Students mm. were shouting, the teacher was barking at them yeah. in role. But the programme gave the appearance that this was in fact a classroom, a history lesson. It was said, this is, this is a history lesson today. Kids shouting, crawling around on the floor. Teacher, who it wasn't dead clear, was in role. Uh, it appeared to be just a teacher shouting at kids and losing control of the class. And, and uh, it was chaos and mayhem. And in that sense, chaos and mayhem and lack of discipline became the representation of progressive education. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. 
Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our Study Skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The mother of murdered schoolgirl Brianna Jai has spoken about the need for positive change and a lasting legacy for her daughter. Mrs Jai visited Westminster as part of her campaign for mindfulness to be taught in all schools in England. She commented on her Peace and Mind UK Facebook page that her focus would be to improve lives by empowering people, giving them the tools to build mental resilience, empathy and self-compassion through mindfulness. She went on to say that she hoped to create more understanding for everyone. Mrs Jai has already raised thousands of pounds to deliver mindfulness training in schools in her local area. The Department for Education has said there were no plans to introduce mindfulness, but the RSHE curriculum included a strong focus on mental health and that all schools had been offered grants to train a senior mental health lead by 2025. Mrs Jai has also spoken about the idea for a phone for under-16s to limit access to social media apps. The Children's Commissioner, Dame Rachel D'Souza, told the BBC that she supported the ideas and said more could be done to promote phones that are safe by design. She described Mrs Jai's vision as really smart, but questioned whether the likes of Google and Apple would create phones with access that is safe by design. PM Rishi Sunak has stated that the new Online Safety Act is robust, but parents told the BBC how difficult it is to take away a smartphone from a child who already has one, whilst others described the pressure from social media as relentless. In Wales, the cap on university tuition fees is rising from £9,000 to £9,250 a year from September. Education Minister Jeremy Miles says he recognises students will be disappointed. A report on the BBC News website says loans will also go up to cover the 2.8% increase, which will affect undergraduate students studying in Wales whose home address is in Wales. Those with a home address in Wales but who study in other parts of the UK are unaffected because they already pay the £9,250 for their studies. Mr Miles blames sustained inflationary pressure on high education providers in Wales and that the increase was unavoidable, but would help to safeguard provision and investment. The Guardian reported on school finances with an article on findings that almost half of multi-academy trusts in England were in deficit last year. The report by the accountancy network Creston UK was based on studying the accounts of 279 trusts representing over 2,300 schools. It found 47% were running in-year deficits. Rising energy bills and staffing costs were blamed by many and made worse by uncertainty around income streams. 
School leaders say that schools are constantly asked to do more with less. Last October, the Department for Education in England admitted to making a £370 million error, meaning mainstream primary and secondary schools will be given at least £50 less for each pupil than original forecasting predicted. This forced school leaders to redraw their budgets for 2024-25. to 25. With energy costs still high and a recruitment and retention crisis leading to an increased use of agency staff, mean that many school leaders are facing further pressure on budgets and many expect a deficit trend to continue. More than 100 school buildings containing dangerous concrete will be rebuilt or refurbished according to a report on the BBC. The government says all affected schools will receive funding to permanently remove the dangerous concrete known as RAC. Unions say the announcement includes no new money. The 234 schools affected in England have reportedly returned to face-to-face -face learning, but many children are still being taught in marquees, portable classrooms or in other off-site locations. Some pupils have not been able to access specialist classrooms for design and technology, as well as science labs and other specialist spaces. The government has been criticised for not making changes to exams for those affected. Finally, a jury in the United States of America has held the mother of a 15-year-old mass shooter criminally responsible for the death of four high school students in 2021. The 15-year-old himself was sentenced to life without parole in December, but at the start of February, the male's mother was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The first time a parent has been convicted of such charges due to their child's role in a mass shooting. The case has raised questions about the accountability of parents. Although the youth's parents had gifted him the weapon days before the attack. Prosecutors also argued that parents had not paid enough attention to their son's declining mental health. US law generally only holds individuals responsible for their own actions, but this case appears to present some change. The schools where the shooting took place has also faced criticism for not acting swiftly when drawings of guns were found on the mail earlier in the day of the shooting. Whatever the outcome of the sentencing, the case appears to be reinvigorating debate around the issue of parental responsibility, alongside individual culpability. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Carl Kitching of Birmingham University. We are discussing the heart of education, religion and culture. You mentioned a phrase which was growing sideways. Mm. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on what the growing sideways idea might be for childhood? Yeah, so it's an idea taken from Catherine Bond Stockton in Queer Childhood and the erasure of children's sexual identity and how uh, we erase homosexuality in, in childhood as something that isn't part of their future. Assume the heterosexuality of the child in the future as such. So she's talking about it in that context. I'm taking a, a different tack, thinking about how we define 
childhood in terms of growing up, which is essentially what she was talking about. Growing up to be a certain type of person, which is ultimately for her this heterosexual, normal individual. And what I'm using it is to talk about the ways in which children act outside of their generational place. They do things and find ways of of growing around problems that exist for them. Like, for example, a child, a Muslim child who doesn't have a space or a time to pray in the school day. So they end up having to pray in the toilets, which is not mm. the good thing. But it's just an example of how children grow around things and find ways to address issues. I gave the example of a child drawing vampires in a church as a way of him dealing with the fact that he was the only atheist in a Catholic class. Children use these difficult metaphors of, of growing around things. Children are not just growing up. They're growing sideways around the barriers <laughs> that we place in front of them. Human. They have completed the process of growing up, but actually through the memories that parents evoke of their own childhoods, that we always, we live with our childhoods. We live with our own childhoods and, and past images of what childhood was, mm. whether for good or for bad. Sometimes that's very painful. Sometimes it's just what a good childhood should be for some people. So adults are not just this completed version of growing up. We are actually growing sideways in that we're always connecting to an image of childhood, whether past, present or future. So we grow horizontal rather than just vertical. The idea around growing sideways is to shed light on the ways children grow around obstacles we put in front of them, but also the ways in which adults are connecting with images of childhood, past, present and future to determine the ways in which current children should live and be and to determine what a good childhood should be. So I, I think it's an important concept because mm, mm. it tries to challenge this idea that growing is this linear process and that it's completed at a certain point. Adulthood is this kind of, you're finished. Yes, you know, yes. And, and it comes back again to playfulness. And yes. I, I talk about how I'm, I'm godfathers to a niece and two nephews. And I started the project before they were born. I acknowledged them as helping me play again because I had gone through a difficult period in my own life. Living with them and being around them taught me to be playful again. Parents play with their children all the time. But if that's just seen as parenting rather than connecting with children, I think we're missing something. Absolutely. One of the joys of parenting is the discovery that you can be stupid and daft and play and (laughs) Put on squeaky voices and hide under a duvet and jump yeah, out. Yeah. And being a teacher as well. I think teachers, even in the most difficult policy circumstances and, and exam-driven systems, find ways to play as well. That's one of the reasons a lot of people teach, despite of how difficult it can be. The joys of teaching at its best can be the moments yeah. when the whole class is laughing at yeah. something a student, what the teacher has just said, or something that occurred yeah. in class. That, and that lesson sticks in their minds or a trip they went on where they experienced something fun. And I, I was struck by a phrase you used there about this idea that you finish and it become increasingly dominated uh, British mm. education. The idea that you leave school with qualifications which prove certain things about you. Either you succeed mm. or you failed and what kind mm-hmm. of success you achieved, if any. And then you're done. Early in my career, I taught for many years in adult education, in evening classes, wonderful different kind of teaching when you've got five people who are yeah. in their 30s and 40s and 50s or retired. Yeah. And that was defunded and disappeared. And the classes, yeah. and if you want to find adult education in this country now, you can find learning languages or learning how to program computers. You, you're going to find it difficult to study history or literature in, in an evening class that you can afford. You can do it yeah. very expensively. My last guest was from Sweden, and he and he's a, taught in a university in Sweden, and he wrote a book about the Swedish uh, folk high schools, which are free for life. Adults wow. can go off into the countryside, I imagine, being near fields and things, 
and mm. learn art and history and literature as well mm. as computing. So they have a much greater concept that you never stop being creative, playful, yeah. and, and, and learning. Absolutely. And the discourse of lifelong learning is very much part of education policy. But I've heard someone once describe it as a life sentence, and I thought that was a perfect way of describing it, because lifelong learning in the policy sense is accreditation and qualification and yes. skills, whereas what you're talking about <laughs> is exploration. So I like a concept of lifelong learning that is playful and exploratory rather than a life sentence where you're oh, yeah. having to re reskill. There must be some point in anyone's life when they think that must be the last exam I'm ever going to do. I'll never do that <laughs> again. I wrote for three hours. Yeah, I, I, so I put that kind of education behind you. I'm, very, I'm hoping that's the case for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so learning sideways, in a sense, is, is recognizing that student, yeah. the young people, children, are subversives. They will subvert, yeah. they will play, they will yeah. draw rude pictures in the corner. That that doodling in the corner of your textbook that drives, drives teachers around the bend is taking ownership of that book, isn't it? It's getting hold of that yeah. piece of learning. Making Absolutely. Well, it can be many things, but definitely it's yes. important. Well, there's probably a whole thesis written about graffiti and what that actually sure, does yeah. to get control of the world you live in. And uh, you, you just, I've heard you describe yourself as a pluralist and someone yeah. who believes in a society of diversity and pluralism. Can you explore what you mean by? Pluralism as opposed to majoritarianism. Yeah, so I suppose pluralism for me, and I talk about it in the Childhood and Religion book, is about deep engagement with difference and with known and unknown others. Known others might be people of a different religious background, but unknown others might be just something that is a kind of a new phenomenon that is unpredictable and that's something you didn't think you would encounter in your life. So pluralism is about engage, positive and constructive engagement with difference. And it's about solidarity across differences without it having to exist in a particular framework. Engagement with people who are different to you is important across different social spheres. That's a very idealistic view of what pluralism is, because to me, it also involves conflict and it involves negotiating hierarchies. A liberal view of pluralism is a little bit like, well, can't we all just get along? The more critical view to me is about recognizing that engagement with difference actually involves engagement with conflict and engagement with hierarchies and trying to flatten out some of those hierarchies and to accept actually that people are not going to agree on everything. The boundaries of which uh, pluralism to me is not about accepting everything. It's not about saying that all views are valid, just because in a pluralistic world, we have to recognize that all views are fallible or contestable. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to fascism, sexism, racism, uh, secular colonialism, all of those things that we know are damaging. We don't suddenly have historical amnesia and decide, oh no, all views are fine. <laughs> Which is, I'm doing research on free speech in schools. It's inspired by the fact that you've got these far right movements that are talking about free speech and the need to be able to say whatever you want as a democratic good in a way that tries to convince people that we didn't already know that certain forms of speech are damaging. So racism, for example, sexism, homophobia, all of those things and yeah. integration of the working class, etc. You know, so to me, pluralism, there are boundaries around it where, you know, just because you engage with different views, it doesn't mean that you have to engage with all views. There are views in a democratic society that we know are damaging and that we know from history education that yes. certain things shouldn't be platformed and don't need to be engaged. And pluralism is, is not being deeply committed to difference, engaging with difficult conversations. A good example of a challenging area of conflict is around sexuality and religion. In Birmingham, there's been major protests about LGBT-inclusive schools from conservative religious groups 
mm-hmm. um, and a, a number of those have been Muslim um, activists and parents. So addressing that is not easy. And unfortunately, the role of politicians in inflaming those things makes things worse. Mm. So I'm not suggesting that pluralism isn't easy. It's inherently actually difficult. But to me, it's something that you have to engage and you have to engage constructively with. I'm glad you said that because it's so easy to just say, well, I'm, I, I believe in diversity. Mm. Leave, leave that there. Diversity means, yeah. as you say, a sort of cosy liberal idea of everyone's different and so on. And yeah. also a, a liberal idea of there are always two sides to an argument, which neutralizes all arguments. So it's just a way of saying we can accept appalling views because there's, yeah, yeah. there's always two sides. Let's look at slavery from the good side. Okay. And it, it is quite interesting. The project that we're doing right now is looking at how that logic has crept into British education policy. The political impartiality policy, for example, that was introduced in February of uh, almost two years ago now by Nadim Zahawi's Department for Education. It introduces this idea of contested views and how schools are not allowed to present contested views as fact. The problem is, how do you define what a contested view is? It clearly problematizes the idea of systematic racism. That policy clearly positions systematic racism as as something that is a contested idea. And I mean, there's a very clear political agenda with it, ironically, political impartiality guidelines. Some people say in schools, glad we have this guidance because now I know where the boundaries are. But the problem is the boundaries that have been introduced likely narrow what we can talk about in terms of acknowledging the existence of certain problems. And again, creating a historical amnesia about what are facts. Kemi Badenoch, when she was Minister for Women and Equalities, said in Parliament that to talk about white privilege, the fact, is against the law, is unlawful. And substitute the word white privilege for race-based social advantage and disadvantage. So sociologically, we know that there are advantages and disadvantages based on race and, and ethnicity. And unfortunately, you've got someone senior in, in government who's saying, well, actually, the word white privilege is a trigger word. But if you were to just talk about this in terms of the fact that there is gender-based advantage and disadvantage, there's race-based advantages and disadvantage, there's class-based advantage and disadvantage, what's the problem with talking about that? And I, I think, you know, it does a disservice to children's experiences when they're not given a language to understand what's going on um, in the world around them, whether it's from their own point of view or the point of view of, the, of, of other people. It, come, it does come back to pluralism and where we acknowledge on, on where your stance is on systematic injustice or whether you, in talking about what we'll allow in a debate or what we'll allow in terms of teaching actually addresses basic facts around systematic injustices that are there for generations. So coming back to pluralism, the liberal pluralist idea of diversity is everything's great and we all appreciate diversity it doesn't accommodate the fact that there is conflict in society and conflict can be productive sometimes obviously conflict can be very destructive but i would be suspicious of people who want to ignore conflict or who want to point at other people who address conflict and say that they're causing conflict that's my answer Thank you so much for that. Professor Carl Kitchen, we have come to an end of our discussion today. Thank you for being generous with your time. I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. You can listen to this again as a podcast. Thanks, John. And that brings to an end this episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week was Professor Carl Kitchen of Birmingham University. And you can find more about Carl's research, work and ideas on the Birmingham University website 
which contains a list of his articles and many of the books which we referred to in this discussion, including his latest one, Childhood, Religion and School Injustice. If you wish to listen to this podcast again, you can find it on Spotify and Apple and Amazon and many other platforms, including the Teachers Talk Radio website. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.